Yeah, no, this has been one of the most, uh, probably, honestly, in astronomy, I'd say the most fun project I've ever been a part of. I think it was so much fun for me because it was exactly the telescope that I've always wanted and that I wish I started with. And I think that's that was the original idea. And I'm very proud to say that we accomplished the goal we set out for. And that was a wide field imaging APO that was hassle-free and got people results early on in those pivotal stages when they really need some momentum to get going in astrophotography. That was Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, AKA my co-host, along with Trevor Jones, also known as Astro Backyard, talking about the new telescope from Radian Telescopes, the Radian Raptor 61, an apochromatic refractor that if you want to get into imaging, this is a telescope you're going to want to learn a lot more about. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. Welcome back, everybody. Today, we're going to be talking about a new telescope coming out from Radiant Telescopes, which is an uh, offshoot of, of uh, OPT. So I'm just going to let uh, I'm going to let Dustin introduce that. And we've also got uh, Trevor Jones here, Astro backyard is joining us to talk about it because i think he had a thing or two to say about <laughs> yeah, this yeah telescope. Trevor, you haven't talked about this scope very much recently at all have you no i've never <laughs> even heard of it actually i'd love to learn more about it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i know man I'm, I'm getting calls literally every day from all over the world now i think the the word has gotten out well what do you what do you expect when you're like you know coming out with the, the these amazing pieces of gear so it's good news right i mean that's what you want to have happen right dustin yeah no this has been one of the most uh probably honestly in astronomy i'd say the most fun project i've ever been a part of ever worked on um it's just when you when you take a challenge from the beginning and you have the time you have the resources you have everything you need to really just do a project right it um, it's so rewarding moving through the process because every challenge starts, it just feels so much more exciting instead of feeling like a hurdle. Cause that's what happens in a lot of product development. It just feels overwhelming sometimes. And then you run into roadblocks and different, you know, or different sources go away or things happen. And so none, it never at any point felt like that from our side, it was just always like, well, what else can we do? What, you know, how do we make this thing you know, the, the right access for people into this hobby and being able to tackle a project from that like passionate standpoint, instead of always just trying to work within the confines of normal product development kind of, you know, practice. It was, I, I don't know, man, I, Trevor, I've, I've never had so much fun making a product. Well, I think it was so much fun for me because it was exactly the telescope that I've always wanted and that I wish I started with. And I think that's that was the original idea. And I'm very proud to say that we accomplished the goal we set out for. And that was a wide field imaging APO 
that was hassle-free and got people results early on in those pivotal stages when they really need some momentum to get going in astrophotography. My my favorite part about our conversations, and I don't know how many times I said this through the last eight months, is is we were talking about this. You know, at first it was just it was you and I driving in my car out to the desert is where this all came up. If you remember that conversation, just the idea that like, well, what if that what if moment? Um, but since then, it's all those conversations that we had that felt to me very, very much like there's a narrative here that I wish more people, honestly, like, I don't know how else to say it. I wish people knew you a little more behind the scenes than is really possible. Even though like people, people spend a lot of time on your YouTube and everything. And I know, you know, they're going to hear you on the podcast and there's a lot you can learn about somebody, but there's so much that comes out in those conversations behind the scenes that I think that's kind of what we should dig into right now, if you don't mind, is like, how did you get here and why is that what you wanted to develop? Because you've used, I mean, how many how many telescopes can you count them at this point? A lot, yeah. Probably somewhere around 30 or more than 30, I would say. Yeah, that's that's not a normal sample size for people in the industry because, you know, it can be can be a challenge to get into a new system, not just financially, but also, you know, there are different adapters and there are different, you know, uh, issues that come up optically with certain types or balancing. Can my mount hold this? All of that stuff for each system you use. So, you know, you have a very unique perspective in that you've tried a lot of different stuff. I'd like to think so. Yeah. And, and I have the unique perspective of explaining it to people all the way along. It's like through each of those telescopes that I, I mentioned, the 30, I was recording videos uh, explaining the features of them and sometimes stumbling because it's like, I actually don't have a great answer for this part and I'm still trying to figure it out. So it was very clear to me uh, the type of product that I was hoping uh, that we would come up with. And uh, I feel like we got it. I have, um, you know, I have tried to just be very aware of like, you know, what is said and, and how it goes out, especially when it pertains to like our conversations um, behind the scenes, because I mean, a lot of it's your personal life and it's your personal preference in, you know, what you like in this hobby. And when you do cross the lines, I mean, trust me, I, I know this as well as anybody where your hobby, your passion also becomes your career. You can get very protective about the little things that you enjoy in it and that like, how much do I share with people? How much is just for me, you know, and like different things like that. Like, for instance, you know, to to not make it so like uh, kind of hard to understand what I'm saying, because I know I'm not doing a great job of explaining it like like processing for me. Processing is something that I just do almost as like a like a meditation, man. I'll, I'll sit there and I don't really have any goal. You know, but I've been asked a lot of times to go do like processing workshops and I always turn that down because it's like, I, it's not really what I do. I'm, I'm not the right guy for one thing. There are people that are so much better at it than me, but there are parts of this hobby that are like uniquely personal that you're just kind of like, man, I, it's not even a thing. Like I just sit there and it's part of what I just enjoy and kind of connect with. And I didn't, you know, I never wanted to bring out any of the details of the conversations, like I said, behind the scenes that maybe could be that for you. So I know there's still a lot of stuff here that's kind of uh, doors unopened for people for the narrative of how this really came about. And that's why I think, you know, for whatever you do want to share, we should talk about how you ended up here because there were no restrictions on this plan. You could have just as easily built a, you know, a 24 inch telescope 
with, um, you know, 4,000 millimeters of focal length. Right, right. right. Yeah, first of all, I, I totally understand where you're coming from, where there's there's aspects of the hobby that are just for you. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that. You don't have to say, well, you know what, I have to get good at teaching image processing. There's there's no reason you have to do that. It can be just for you, just enjoy it. And I can definitely relate with the image processing. Although I do uh, tutorials, uh, a lot of it is just six hours of me with headphones on, listening to the Interstellar soundtrack and just having a ball on my latest data. So I totally get that. But as for the behind the scenes of this telescope, and why it was so important to me. And I feel like I really did uh, put my heart and soul uh, into the not only every thought behind the design, but also um, what I wanted it to be and tried to steer it in the direction uh, that I had in mind. And it's because I really believe in the power of getting, I think this hobby is a lot bigger than, I think it will be a lot bigger than it is right now. I realize it's exciting and I feel like it's starting to take off, but I honestly think it's going to be 10 times more popular than it is right now in, in about five years. I can see it coming and I wanted to, and maybe it's a bit selfish, I wanted to have the telescope that's the gateway into deep sky astrophotography from those people that are just shooting nightscapes, maybe they got their first star tracker. I want to have the telescope that takes them off the deep end. And uh, that's honestly it. It's the, it's the Gateway Telescope. And I truly believe that it has what it takes to do that because, man, it's got, it's got to have everything right to, to accomplish that because it's a steep hurdle for a lot of people. When you say the hobby, what, are you talking about uh, imaging or are you talking about observing and imaging all of it? Because you know, what do you mean when you mean the hobby? You're right, you're right Tony. I generalize it and I, I throw the word the hobby around and I live and breathe astrophotography. So when I, when I say hobby and for future reference throughout this conversation, I'm referring to astrophotography. I love astronomy and space and the entire experience, but um, astrophotography is my specialty and where I think I can actually have an influence. Oh, okay. All right. And uh, why do you think it's going to be 10 times bigger? All the platforms that are in place right now, um, I know a lot, of, I've seen the Instagram community. It's a great uh, benchmark for, for where I see this explosion. So I had my Instagram account in 2014. I was one of the few astrophotographers that was shooting deep sky images on Instagram. I know Instagram itself wasn't as big as it is now, uh, but the difference now in this massive community of deep sky astrophotographers on Instagram and on Facebook and in the forums, um, it's just so much bigger than it was five, six years ago because I've been doing this, this hobby, astrophotography, for 10 years. I think the biggest change is there's it's a younger generation entering and really um, excelling at it. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. And do you feel like it's, uh, is, is astrophotography to you its own thing or is it just a subset of photography? Because I think if Dustin got into the hobby as a photographer, I believe first, right, Dustin? And then you also tried your hand at it and then fell in love with it. Do you think that it's going to get so big because photographers are going to want to try their hand at it? Or do you think it's going to be because people who've never held a camera before want to take a picture of, say, Mars? Yeah, it's tough to say. It kind of has all those things going for it because it overlaps in a few categories, as you mentioned. So 
even if it's from the scientific side and the astronomy-based space interest that leads to the photography. It's like, well, you know what? I, I love space and I, I want to actually photograph it. So I'm going to have to get into photography. I know that that's a path that a lot of people take too. Me personally, it was, I'm more of an art side of things as opposed to science. So it was more of the photography and astronomy all at once. So I really think the the explosion and the younger generation uh, is probably going to lean from the um, photography side of things. But uh, to be honest, space and astronomy is so fascinating uh, and so amazing that it has that ability to just capture attention. So even for people that had no interest in astronomy previously or very loose, um, through photography, I think can get really hooked on it. Photography is a, a shareable experience. You know, we, we talk about this from time to time when we compare the two hobbies and we really do kind of segment them off individually, not because the people that enjoy one won't enjoy the other. Almost everybody that does astrophotography still loves looking through telescopes. And I don't know if it's as much vice versa, but, you know, to a, to a large degree, I'd say it is. So people enjoy usually multiple aspects of the hobby, but it's... um. You know, they're, they're two completely different skill sets. And you are, as an astrophotographer, it really should probably be reversed because you end up learning more first about photography than you do astronomy. And as a visual astronomer, I'd say you learn more about the night sky and astronomy than you generally do about the equipment itself and things like that. Um, but when you're doing astrophotography, there's just no room for error in equipment at all. The equipment has to, in, in photography as well, you know, there's really no type of photography where it's like, well, it's fine if my, my lens is loose and just shaking on the front of the, you know, like there, <laughs> you can't get away with that stuff. There's just no room for error. And then when you're trying to photograph something like deep space, where you're focused to infinity, anything that goes wrong, I mean, you got to be tracking the rate the earth is moving exactly and in the opposite direction and then guiding for anything that changes for, you know, the wind moves or, you know, somebody walks by, like everything is stacked against you. Your equipment really has to be perfect, even when you're talking about wide field. And so tackling a challenge like this for that side of the hobby is no small task, right? Which we, which we learned together very quickly. Should we start talking about the telescope because we haven't talked about it much yet? Do you want to you want to go into describing what it is and what it can do and some of the some of the challenges that you have overcome with it? Yeah, well, I, I still so yes, I want to I want to dig into that because I you know for one thing I'm just so proud of how the whole thing came along and like you. Um, I, I love the artistic aspect of this and I love the global reach that astronomy has for people. But I think that as a community, if we, if we just isolated people with an interest in astronomy globally, I think the community is underserved and I don't think that it's been any intentional, you know, uh, misrepresentation or, you know, misleading marketing or anything like that. I just think that it's a relatively new, it's it, well, actually, it's an extremely new hobby and, the infrastructure to push it out to the masses has, you know, yet to exist until very recently, even was it starting to be developed. So, um, you know, I think the first question that I would really still like to, to dig into is your why. Because like I said, I mean, when we started talking from the first time this conversation came up, most people and probably myself included, when I think about like, what's the ultimate dream scope? 
man, I think this massive thing, the size of a Greyhound bus, you know, in my backyard on a direct drive mount and all this stuff. But you literally, from the first time we said, what's the dream scope? You're going to develop this scope. Like, what's your dream scope? It was this from the first conversation. And that's that's the why that I want to understand. It's it's so interesting because I have to be reminded of that when people see this that are new to astrophotography and potentially astronomy, and they see this little 61 millimeter telescope, they, they might be thinking, that's it? That, that's the perfect telescope? That's the one you designed, this, this little piece of glass? But um, yeah, that, <laughs> that is my dream scope. The best way to describe um, how, how we pulled that off is that on Friday night, I went to a brand new location, uh, brought very limited gear, including the Raptor 61. I photographed the Andromeda galaxy. It's my favorite picture I've ever taken of that galaxy. And that night, that whole experience was absolutely so polished from, from, from setup to tear down. I didn't even think about the telescope. I actually, that was the last thing I thought of. I thought about the, the experience under the night sky, photographing that target uh, and the pictures I was taking, but fiddling with the telescope was something that was non-existent. And I don't know if that's ever happened before. So a perfect telescope is one you don't have to think about, right? <laughs> it really is. It really is. Yeah. So, and, and there's obviously there, there's some specs about this telescope that lend itself very well to hassle-free. Um, the biggest and most obvious for, for anyone that's gotten started in this hobby and they're dealing with pictures that uh, their tracking is magnified and uh, they're having trouble with balance and weight. The fact that it's a lightweight, wide field, flat apochromatic refractor means that it's very forgiving on tracking and guiding, and it's also very lightweight. So even a modest equatorial mount will have no problem tracking the night sky with it. Yeah. And when you say modest, I mean, you're talking about double A battery powered mounts, like tiny backpack mounts, you know, not, not yeah, big, just... I'm going to carry out a deep cell uh, or deep cycle car battery or whatever, marine battery. Yeah, like the, the Star Adventure runs on four AA batteries, and that's that's a backpack mount. And that's the kind of thing, if you're going to a dark sky location and you don't, you can't mess up, right? You know, it, you have limited time there, you drive a long way, you can't take any risks and decide to, you know, have this big setup that, you know, it could go either way, something could come up. You need the foolproof plan. And the fact that you can fit this entire system in a backpack, including the tracker, uh, and just hang the tripod along uh, is a pretty remarkable thing, actually. And you're just using you're using a non cooled camera for all of the photos, which that that Andromeda you you just shot, by the way, those colors were unbelievable on that image. I'm not surprised that's your favorite. Um, that that was remarkable. Uh, it looked like Thanks, there man. there had to be a lot of processing time in that. That was incredible. There, there definitely was. And, uh, you know, to be honest, I've processed a lot of Andromeda photos over the years. I've probably, that was probably my, uh, you know, 25th or 30th process of Andromeda. So I'm getting pretty good at it too. Um, but yeah, the, I, I do prefer to use the Raptor with the uh, Canon EOS RA, which is just a mirrorless camera, very similar to a full frame DSLR camera. And, uh, that is, you know, mainly because of that really user-friendly experience, no headaches, no surprises, um, you know, cooled cameras, 
especially the ones that are out now can do some incredible things, but man, you can all, you can get some amazing shots with the DSLR mirrorless camera. I can't wait to see the stuff that is, uh, because that's still a color camera, right? Which is giving up, um, you know, 70 ish percent of the light due to the Bayer matrix on it. Um, you know, you're not running just true narrowband filters into a monochrome chip. I can't wait to see, because I know, you know, it's the first thing that's going to happen. No, November 11th shows up. We ship all of these out. The next day, there will be a lot of these really nice, you know, like the new ZWO 6200s monochrome with three nanometer filters where people are just going to push it absolutely as far as it can go. And what's really exciting is that these images already look like top tier, like nobody would be surprised if that recent image got an APOD. Like nobody would be surprised at all. It's APOD quality. And there is still a lot of room on the camera front on what you're putting on the back of that thing to push images even further. I can't wait to start seeing some of that stuff roll in. Absolutely. Like I'm, I'm going to, it's going to be the biggest thrill for me. The first time I see an astrophoto with the Raptor 61 that wasn't taken by me. Uh, this weight is actually killing me. I feel like we're, time is going backwards uh, because I want these scopes in people's hands because it feels like right now, uh, you know, I, I'm putting out images. I'm talking about this telescope and sharing it, but I, it feels kind of lonely because I can't share this experience with, with other owners. So I'm anxiously awaiting for the 11th of November. So that's when it becomes available is on the 11th? Yeah, yeah. So it says there in the notes that uh, November 11th is the first ship date. And so... Um, everything, there's actually a lot of extras that, um, is what I was just about to mention, but it ships on the 11th. So the people that are in this first run will get theirs, you know, shipping, then they'll get their tracking on the 11th. Um, but this has been the most challenging thing. You know, I don't know if you guys were like this, but when I was a kid, when Christmas was coming up, I was that one, like if I, I'm a, I'm a giver by nature, you know? And so I'm terrible at it though. Like when I, when I have a secret, it's already lost. I don't know how many uh, yeah. times. Yeah, I know just what you mean. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've slipped on our uh, live streams on Twitch where we all have secrets that marketing will in advance tell me, Dustin, don't, we know you, man. Don't say it. Don't do it. <laughs> as soon as I log in, I say it. Literally, as soon yeah. as I get there, I'm so excited about it, man. I mean, this stuff excites me. It's like, as soon as I get there, I feel like, all right, I'm with my crew now everybody's talking imaging we're loving this stuff and i'm like check this out guys look at this you know and so i've got all this raptor stuff at the office and i'm not going to do it driver i'm not going to say it right now but it's the hardest thing and i've like i've been telling stacy at the office i'm like man i almost feel like as a protective strategy against like these these pro or toward these projects we need to either keep me out of the loop for a while or not have, you know, a few weeks pre-order period because this is killing me. Seeing all this stuff <laughs> sitting here that I can't talk about that, you know, like I know people are getting because it's exciting, man. And you want to share that excitement, especially on something that's so cool, you know? Absolutely. You know, there's so much interest, so many people talking. I feel a, a huge obligation uh, to share as much as I can about it in uh, beforehand. 
Um, but yeah, the exclusivity of being the sole owner of a Raptor 61 is not being appreciated fully by me. It's, it's, it's killing me. <laughs> um, the other thing that you mentioned, those, those you know, high caliber cameras, um, which I have not even, you know, I've got some of these cameras, uh, monochrome CCDs and everything. I haven't even explored that territory just because I'm having just too much fun uh, connecting my mirrorless camera to it. But I know that's coming uh, and I can't wait to see um, you know, the incredible results people get with it. Uh, the other thing, the, the motorized focuser, I haven't even, I haven't used it yet. And I know that that was a huge feature to a lot of people uh, because that's one of the features that really separates it from some of the uh, competitors, if you will, to this telescope. Yeah. And Tony, think about that for a second. So this is a product launch. This is actually a very large product launch. Um, and when, whenever, you know, think about any product ever that you're trying to show its absolute best because you're like hey look what this can do ever yeah. going out and shooting it with a color camera <laughs> you know not that they're bad but you don't that's not how you highlight I, I think it just shows kind of the authenticity of the way you approach the entire project honestly trevor because it's like man i mean that's that's exactly the way that you shoot but uh, you know as a like from a marketing perspective you don't do that you don't go out and shoot with a color camera much less one that's uncooled to show off what a telescope well, can do yeah maybe know? that's true but at the same time you know it 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 shows a different part of just how good the scope is right if you can get the kinds of images that trevor's sharing now with these dslrs you're not even approaching the limits of what the can of what the telescope can do then that's a different kind of uh of show off right i mean maybe it's not the most pristine thing the telescope can do but this is something everybody can do and even this is orders of magnitude better than what's out there so so in a way it's kind of it's kind of cool because you can you can look at that and go wow that's all he used well i think i could do that and then you want it all the more right because you don't need the top of the line equipment to get these kind of images out of it you nailed it tony it totally takes the pressure off me if anyone's like well it's you know it's a pretty good picture i'll be like well it's not even a cooled camera like Come on. I know. When do we put up a, a better camera on this thing and then watch, right? Oh, man. So you just you made that decision out of insecurity. Yeah. The image. <laughs> so for, for a color image, this is, you know, mind blowing. But, yeah. uh, you know. Yeah. So. Oh, man. Uh, I was I was, you know, super jealous. Um, man, I, I, I held my word. I told you that as soon as we got it, I'd send it to you because you had you had the uh, you had the hard job. You know, you had to develop this thing and then test this thing and produce the images from it. But I can tell you it was very, very challenging when that scope showed up because it came to OPT first for us to verify that everything was there. And as we had, you know, put in um, and I had that scope for hours before I had to ship it to Trevor. And that was like, man, it was like letting, you know. <laughs> sending my kid <laughs> off to school to, for the first no. time. Yeah, it's like, oh, I can't. Like, I can't I can't do this, you know? And it was hard not to call you and be like, hey, man, um, we're going to need to keep this one here for a couple weeks. And uh, <laughs> I'm just going to delay the launch. <laughs> so I haven't even used it. It's crazy. It's crazy. All I, you know, I've just been able to, um, you know, witness all the images and talk to you about your experience. But um yeah, man, I'm I'm just as excited as everybody else because you know they're they're rolling in this week and you know I'll be one of the people going out and using it finally. Yeah, it was. I mean, it it was uh, you know a lot of pressure being the only one to uh, to share 
results with it and everything and being the only one actually to have one in their hands. But at the same time, uh, because of the type of scope it was, it was also like the easiest product testing I've ever done uh, because there were no surprises. And to be honest, it caught me off guard. That very first image I took of the Heart and Soul Nebula, um, that was the when I saw the first exposure come through, I think I messaged you right after. I was like, Dustin, like this is this is game over. Like I, I've seen enough. One exposure and I'd seen enough. Yeah. Yeah, I, I immediately sent that to Jeff, uh, our our director of marketing, and I was just like, this just came from Trevor. And all I got back was one of those emojis with the head exploding, and it just said, dude, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> like, I was like, yeah, exactly. There's nothing you can say. Like, that that image is not... It still is, too. I mean, we have that posted on the page for anybody that wants to see it. But I love that wide field, man. I never get enough of that just that truly wide field where it's not even, I mean, the heart nebula is gigantic from our perspective, but when you're getting the heart and the soul in the same image, that's a big field of view. Oh, it's, it's massive. So, you know, that's, that's something that's, that's worth talking about too. Like, you know, early on, it's so helpful to have a wide field scope because it is more forgiving, you know, framing your target, finding your target. If you don't have a go-to mount, uh, finding a bright star to focus on, all those things are so much easier when you have this huge field to play with. Um, but if someone's looking to go really deep into small, tiny galaxies or photograph planets, the Raptor 61 is not for you. This is a wide field imaging refractor for large nebulae. And, and the largest galaxies like Andromeda and M33 and stuff like that. So um, it's not something I talked about it because it is kind of obvious to, to anyone that's been in the astrophotography hobby for even a few months. But yeah, it's, it's wide. It is not high magnification by any means. And I think that's fair. It's, it's not something we've talked about enough is really who it's not for. Because it's not. It really isn't for everyone. Like, you know, I, I'm, I know that I'm going to get questions about because I get the questions about this for every single telescope that we sell, but how do I shoot Jupiter with it? How do I shoot Saturn? You know, this is not a planetary system. It's not that you can't do it, but it, it's certain there's so many things out there that will outperform it. And I would say the same thing about visual astronomy. This really, it can do it, but you can spend the same or potentially even less money and get something that's going to outperform it if you're just going to do visual observing. Well, right. But I get that. But what about if, if you had a wide field telescope that does that as its default, uh, as its default setup, but then you, you know, you didn't want to buy an entirely different long focal length telescope. Could you not with this telescope put in say, um, a Barlow or something and, and get decent views of Jupiter, or is that just not the appropriate way to use this telescope? So you can, the, uh, it is a truly apochromatic telescope. So it will like, it has, you know, perfect color correction. It's going to give you great views. The real problem comes down to two things. One is obviously focal length and the other is aperture. You're trying to solve the focal length issue with a Barlow, but, um, you know, you're still not going to have the aperture to resolve very much. And so it's not, um, you know, and, and you'd have to have such a gigantic barlow because it's really meant for wide field photography. Um, that it's just you're you're really not doing like it's not designed for that job. You have additional elements for visual. Generally, you want three elements. You know, here we've got additional elements so that it produces a flat field across a flat sensor chip instead of you know the human eye. Um, and you know, when you start looking at all of that stuff, it's like, well, why would I give up? 
the additional contrast. And, you know, because that's that's what visual scopes are great at is essentially they do a little bit of the post-processing for you before the light hits your eye because you don't have any post-processing on visual. With astrophotography, it's the exact opposite. You want to get all of the data you possibly can. You want your images to come through with maximum dynamic range, which ultimately makes the image look a bit flat before you process it. You know, in for visual, you don't want that. You want it to be kind of like you might use oil spacing, which is going to inhibit some of the color correction. It's not a great thing for color correction, but it's kind of cheating toward that pre-processing your image so that when you see it, it looks a little better visually. And that's why I'm saying like, you know, things that are great for visual are not necessarily great for astrophotography. And so if you're leaning and saying 80% of my shooting is going to be wide field astrophotography, or I'm going to shoot wide and crop with these new high resolution cameras, then yes, this is absolutely the right scope. Because if you're only going to be using it for 10 or 20% for the other stuff, then great. Like you're not going to get the best view in the world of Jupiter through it. Um, but that's not what you're using it for. And if you just want to see it from time to time, great. Yeah, absolutely. It can do that. But where it really excels is for people that say astrophotography and sharing these types of images, like getting this stuff at maximum resolution across a big field. That's where I live. That's what I want to do. That's who this is for. And that's what it was designed for. And, and I guess that's been true, you know, since the beginning of telescope time. I mean, you know, Hans Lippershey came out with the first telescope back in the 1600s. And Galileo's like, hmm, you know, this is great for Jupiter, but uh, you got anything I could maybe look at some of these galaxies with? And Hans is like, I don't know, man. You're going to have to wait. I have to build you another telescope for that. I mean, it's been that way. <laughs> it's, it's been, been that way since the beginning of yeah, and it'll take me a few hundred years before we get there. But hey, you keep that you keep that up on the list there. We'll we'll take care of you later. <laughs> it's true of all telescopes. It's just telescopes are expensive to develop. They're they're challenging to get right. And so it's a lot I mean, it's a lot easier to market something as this can do everything than it is to yeah. just say, look, this is what this is designed for and great at. And there are other tools for other jobs, but you know, we wanted this from the beginning to be something that serves astrophotographers. And so we never felt obligated to make any of the componentry, anything about it designed from the ground up to be the best at visual. There's nothing in it that was designed for visual use. I think it's interesting when you compare it to a camera lens. So I've got a lot of telephoto lenses. I've got a, you know, a, a 300, a 400 F 5.6. And because it's actually, when you, when you look at the specs, it's, it's almost obvious. It's like, well, let's compare it to a camera lens. And when you do that, the, the Raptor 61 really starts to stand out. Uh, the price tag being one of them, because uh, if, if either of you have bought telephoto lenses before, you know that a sub $1,000 lens is almost non-existent. Yeah, but because right. this, this triplet is f4.5, that's usually what the telescopes are lacking in. They can't, they can't meet, uh, meet that F ratio that some of these lenses have. But at f4.5, that's very comparable to, say, an f4 300-millimeter lens. But the difference is with this, you have all the mounting hardware ready to go to put on an equatorial mount, which these lenses aren't, and the focuser, which is you know essential for astrophotography. Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the comparison with a camera lens because I think that's a great analogy. Um, how 
how does it compare optically with some of these lenses? I mean, do, are there, I'm interested in knowing how you guys decided, you know, well, it's going to be this aperture. We're going to put this kind of coatings on it. The glass is going to be made of, of this. Uh, how, how are those decisions made and how does it compare with say the, the telephoto lenses you were just talking about? So before I let Dustin answer this probably, you know, properly, because uh, I'm sure he has a better answer, but I would say that the op optics of a triplet APO are very comparable to say something like a Canon L-series lens, because I know uh, chromatic aberration is very minimal, they're flat, uh, the apertures, you know, very similar. So, uh, and taking photos with each of them, I noticed, you know, similar results in terms of star quality uh, with them actually being sharper and flatter on the Raptor 61, but maybe Dustin has a more uh, precise answer for that. Yes. So um, there were a, a million of these things that came up, Tony. Like, I mean, as you can imagine, right? Because you have to think yeah. about every single one. In every decision you make, there's a, a consequence or an implication in this, right? So like we can push as far as we want, but every time we do, we know we drive price up. So for instance, let's say that we wanted our glass to be... 96% transmission um, and color correction to point A or whatever, you know, or some arbitrary number. We wanted color correction to be to where the human eye is not going to be able to tell the difference. Um, you would really have to analyze this stuff with like a computer program to tell. You can still push past that to where you could get the bragging rights of like, oh, mine is 96.3% or 96.4. But that 0.4 will have zero impact on an image to where no, no two people in the world, nobody could look at these two images and tell which one is 96 and 97. No one. And so what we tried to do was find that balance starting at a place of what is the absolute best package that can come into existence at a price point that is affordable, like we said, like like Trevor was saying, at something that people are already doing. So like people buy telephoto lenses, they're always more than a thousand dollars. You get especially one that can be focused to infinity well to shoot stuff like that. I mean, you're in the three, four thousand dollar range. And so how do we get this under a thousand dollars and push everything to a spec? that people won't feel like they lost anything, which means it has to be only computer program detectable. I want people to look at this and say, yep, that's perfect color correction. But then stop, stop right there. And don't say, all right, now let's push it to where, you know, if we get a really nice computer, we're gonna find this. <laughs> like, no, sure, because now yeah. we're gonna drive the price up to $1,800 for something that doesn't offer an additional benefit to the photographer that's trying that we're trying to serve. Not the one that's going out and doing science, not the one that's going out and doing anything other than taking their best photos, right? That's the only one we felt obligated to serve. And so that's where all of our decisions were capped is how do we get there where they don't have to compromise on their images, period. If they're compromising, we start over. It can't be like, well, it's pretty color corrected. No, it has to be, they're not compromising. They will not have issues in their image. And, and when we get there, let's stop. Let's stop pushing it forward because I don't want to drive the price up anywhere beyond what it has to. We, this first and foremost has to be accessible. 
that makes a lot of sense because you've got, uh, you know, you may have bragging rights that say 97% transmission or whatever, but it came at a cost of thousand dollars more exactly. than when you would have paid, you know, uh, at, at 96 or whatever. So yeah, it totally makes sense. Exactly. And I've, I've probably gotten a series of, you know, 15 different spec questions that, you know, people are getting frustrated with because I keep answering with images. And I keep telling people, even on the stream, I answer these questions with images. And well, they that's ask, the well, currency. Yeah, they're like, well, why, why don't you, other scopes tell me this, or other scopes tell me this, or, you know, I want to know exactly. I mean, I'm getting questions down to like, well, if I put a filter in, it's changing the F ratio because now there's refraction through a filter in the back and that's three millimeters thick. And that's going to change my F ratio from F 4.5 to F 4.99927. And I'm just like, this is the exact thing that Trevor and I were trying to avoid. And this is why I will not engage that conversation is because we are trying to serve the community and expand the community. And that type of, you know, that type of marketing, that type of, you know, even just pushing information out into a community, for one, it isolates the people that enjoy that, which is a very, very small percentage. And then what it does is it segregates the market and it gets people always looking for something negative instead of driving their images forward in a positive direction together. And so we just don't participate in that. It's just this simple. Look at the image. Try to find something wrong with it, because I promise you, however hard you're trying to find it, we've tried harder. So look at the image, try to find something wrong with it. And as you just said, those images are the currency. This is astrophotography, and the images are the hobby. It is not picking apart manufacturing practices of glass uh, you know, across four different countries. That is not the hobby. And so if you want to argue about stuff like that, great. But that is not the goal of this scope. This goal is to create a brand new access to a hobby that we feel like more people should enjoy. And if we can do that, and we and we we have, then we feel like our job was complete. And that's exactly what this mission was from the beginning. Well, going back to the comparison with the telephoto lenses then, is that a fair comparison? Because correct me if I'm wrong, these lenses that you're saying are, you know, a couple thousand dollars, don't they also have to have movable elements in them or are they not zoom are we are we are you are you just talking about fixed i, I was focal yeah. telephotos i was talking about prime telephotos that are, are you know the most comparable okay to, all right to, then yeah okay you, got you it. probably right. get so, this yeah that would add a lot of cost it would seem to me when you're moving elements in and out um well and it's actually it a very bad thing line. for what we do for astrophotography i get this question all the time I, I'm, i'd imagine you probably get this question more than i do too Trevor, so feel free to jump in. But the, the question at its base is when you hook a camera to a telescope, you're essentially just making that telescope a lens instead of just a normal telescope, right? And so what's the difference? Why not just use a lens? Because I can get a lens that's f1.4 and this telescope's going to be f4.5 or, you know, any, because... co any comparison like that. <laughs> Because the slightest breeze will come by and spin wow. that helical focuser and you'll lose focus <laughs> on that F4 lens. Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of little subtle things that go into, and you almost have to go through it for yourself outside in the dark to understand why 
telescopes exist, especially uh, imaging APOs over a lens. Uh, even when you compare the focal length and, and the F ratios, they seem similar, but it's a totally different user experience. You get into automatic focusers and mounting guide scopes and locking the focus and you know everything that comes along with a telescope. And so we've actually been really fortunate on our side because we have, you know, OPT for a long time was actually the other side of it was the camera company, normal, uh, traditional photography. So we had all these lenses. I mean, we still probably have a thousand lenses at this shop right now. And these are things that we've done a lot of testing with. And what happens, and we, we, we teach our team this in the OPT university trainings, but they're very, very different. They're designed for different purposes. And if you really start to break it down, some of this stuff, you know, it, it kind of clicks and makes sense. Think about how many elements in the first place your camera lens has. Generally, camera lens is going to have somewhere between 14 and 18 elements. Telescopes take the minimalist approach. You want as few elements as possible. So to get perfect color correction, you need three. And then if you want to make it not perfect, perfectly color corrected for the human eye, but instead a flat camera sensor, then you need to add additional elements. Three will not be enough, but it's not many. Generally, a couple of elements and you're there. So you might have five or six elements total in your system. Every single element, you don't think of that as another good thing. You want as few as possible. Every single element is offering its own transmission, which means you're losing a portion of the light every time it hits that glass. And now you've got internal reflections, you've got other things happening, and that stuff can also dampen contrast. And here's the other thing, and this is the most important thing. Telescopes are designed to do one thing, which is be focused at infinity at a fixed aperture. Okay, so they only are meant to perform focused at infinity. Where camera lenses are designed to be focused, is never at infinity. And so they can do it, but it is not what they are designed to do. They operate best generally at about their mid aperture and generally somewhere about their mid focal range. And so you don't want to take something that's like redlining your car and being like, that's where it absolutely performs best is when it's just all the way past the red line. It's like, no, it can do that, but it's not going to perform very well. And that's exactly what's... Um, you know, what you'll see if you compare lenses, and we have, I mean, we took out some really, really nice Leica glass. I still do a lot for Fujifilm, um, you know, with like astro images. And I have images posted with uh, the Fujifilm. You know, these are big, medium format. I mean, five times the cost of this telescope lenses that are, you know, fixed, uh, fixed focal length. And they still, when you look at the images, it's very obvious especially in the corners, that one was a telescope and the other was a camera lens. And the camera lens, I mean, a, an inexpensive telescope will generally beat a very expensive camera lens just because it was only designed to perform there. It's not nearly as versatile. You're not going to take it to the zoo with you. But if you're only shooting at night, pointed up, it is absolutely going to be sharper across the entire image, and it's going to be much, much better performing when focused to infinity. Yeah, excellent. That was an excellent explanation. I was just, I was hoping to get to that because all of these elements that are in these other lenses are completely unnecessary in a telescope. And as you, as you rightly point out, you've got to code each one of those elements and you've got to worry about internal reflections, alignment, manufacturing problems, all this other stuff for every single element you put in that optical path. So that's one reason why everybody seems to like reflectors a lot in astronomy too, is you've got two, two surfaces plus an eyepiece and, and you're basically there unless you've got a corrector plate. So, 
it's it's uh, in many ways not a fair comparison, and that's where I was hoping no. to go with this. Because that, you, I mean, telescopes, yeah, a, a seven hundred dollar, eight hundred dollar, or even in this case, a nine ninety nine dollar uh, telescope will outperform camera lenses I've used that you know twenty thousand dollars plus, you know, on like phase one stuff and things. I mean, it's it's just not what they're designed for. Those things will win at what they are designed for, but when you start pointing them up at the sky. They just aren't designed well for that purpose. And so, you know, they can go out and they can shoot the Milky Way and they can do a really great job at that. But you start trying to get deep space stuff and it's going to leave you wanting and spending more on it is not going to solve the problem for you. It's really just the wrong tool for the job. So th these images on the website that I'm looking at now uh, that you took with the, I, I assume you took these, uh, Trevor, I'm not, I don't know, but uh, uh, they're, they're beautiful images, but what's the, what, what, what goes the, what kind of field of view are we talking about here with this telescope? A couple oh, I degrees? Don't, uh, yeah, a couple. De I think it was um, closer to three with this full frame sensor on here. Yeah, it's pretty massive. Um, I don't know the exact, but... Uh, and that's a good point. It will change with the camera you put on it. That's an excellent point. So I'm glad. But so, yeah, about about two or three. Yeah, about there. Yeah, I don't know the specifics. Um, but uh, Den Dustin mentioned a good point about... Um, it's so wide that you can actually with the, you know, a modern camera and the resolution, you can crop and get some pretty amazing results. I did a standalone image of the, just the soul nebula from the heart and soul nebula image. Uh, and it's my best soul nebula, um, to date. Um, so it's just, um, I think it's very is versatile when you have, so this one, this one of the heart and soul is pretty, is crop maybe 10% in. Um, but the, uh, I did a standalone soul nebula, uh, that really holds its own as a, as an, as its own entire image, um, which is, you know, you know, huge 50% crop of that entire sensor. Cool. Wow. Yeah. And I'll, I'll say this and it will only, it will probably only register as even partially controversial to super nerds like us. Um, but I think that the majority of the shooting over the next five to 10 years is going to be done that way with that mindset, which is shoot wide and crop. I think that's where it's going because Cameras are just so damn good now. So ridiculously good. I mean, for a long time, like the standard that everyone was using was the 8300 CCD chip. That's an eight megapixel chip that's really small. I mean, a fraction of the size of the CMOS camera you're using now, your uh, mirrorless camera. And, you know, look at some of these new chips that are 60 megapixels plus and full frame compared to the 8300, which was very noisy, very low quantum efficiency, um, had all kinds of issues. Calibration was exceedingly, like so, so unbelievably important. And, you know, it was like all of the best images were coming off of chips like those. And so you would really need to make sure you match that pixel size to a focal length and go after your targets to really try to get close to the framing because you just don't have the resolution to give up if you're shooting too much context in the image. But now, if you're shooting 60 megapixels, I mean, think about this for a second. You shoot the heart and the soul nebula. You didn't shoot one image. Of course, you can use it that way. But let's say you cut the image down the middle. You've still got 30 megapixel images. You could cut them down the middle again and still have twice the resolution you had on the old imaging standard. I know you're right about that. The, these chips are, are redonk as far as how much, just how much they've got, you know, pixels. It's just like, are you kidding me, man? It's, it's spoiled, but you know, it used to be 
the gold with Holy Grail was to get as good as a 35 millimeter film frame. And that, you know, that was it. Well, that's long since been blown away. So this is, <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. It's true. And I yeah, think you're right. One good camera and you're set. I think that that's what, and, and they're starting to get, because computers are getting better right there along with the cameras. And so read rates are just going through the roof. I mean, the new, the newest uh, QHY camera even has a fiber option, um, which is like, I mean, you can you can take this gigantic sixty megapixel chip and run planetary off of it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like that's, that's crazy. wow. Is that the six hundred? Well, yeah, the six hundred. The pro version has that, and so it's just like, I think that that's going to be a lot of the new mo for imaging, because like you mentioned at the very beginning of this, you're like, man, wide field just solves a lot of problems, the inherent problems with imaging, atmosphere. Issues are major issues in most places in the world. If you live, you know, on a mountain in Hawaii or in Chile, listen, I'm jealous and I'm happy to visit you anytime. Um, but you're not that you're not in the normal, you know, uh, situation. Most people don't have those kind of skies or access to them. And so having the atmospheric issues above you, the more focal length you get, the more you're amplifying those issues and the more that tracking becomes important. Now you got to buy a better mount where the guiding becomes more important. You got to have a bigger guiding sensor because your field of view just got smaller, that long focal length, um, you know, and every little detail becomes more challenging. The weight, it's no longer portable. I just think that you can solve a lot of problems just by staying with a, you know, a short focal length scope, shoot wide and crop. Absolutely. I, I think that's one of the reasons, um, not just the forgivingness, but it also is like the purest aspect of the hobby, the the freedom of it, you know, traveling to a dark sky site with a little sky tracker. It's not so much, you know, sitting at a computer screen or sitting in an observatory and going to bed kind of thing. It's like being out there and the live action, uh, those spontaneous setups. Um, I think this telescope is perfect for that style of astrophotography, which is my favorite style. Uh, which is why I'm so happy to be tied in with this with this Raptor. So what's the feedback? Because I know at this point, nobody has yet received theirs. They ship out on the 11th, so uh, just a couple weeks here now. Um, so what's the feedback that you're getting with the limited stuff that people are seeing, which is really just the images that you're posting and then the, you know, the interviews you've done and things like that? Like what, What's the feedback? Uh, so the number one feedback, uh, first of all, it, you know, it really showed who my super fans are. Um, when the video came out, the, I probably got about 50 personal, uh, congratulations, man. I'm so proud. Like, you know, we've, you know, we've been with you on this journey for so long and this is how far we've came kind of messages. And those felt so good. Uh, so that was the initial response. Now uh, it's a lot of people saying, you know what, I've got mine ordered. I can't wait. And, you know, every time I share a new picture, they're just like, oh, you're killing me. Um, and a, a lot of those people I've seen are very early on in the hobby, too. So I'm just like, oh, yes, we've got you now because you're going to have this positive experience. And I'm confident that you're not going to just get totally discouraged with something that you, you know, you tried to run before you could walk kind of thing. Um, yeah. And then the last one is a lot of. Uh, people saying, okay, well, should I get this over that kind of conversations? 
And, uh, you know, because I used the red cat for, for so long, uh, and people know I love that telescope, people comparing it to that, which doesn't surprise me at all. And my answer there is, of course, you know, you don't need to replace your red cat or anything like that, but it is another great option for you uh, in that similar realm. So um, I'm, I'm glad it's there for them. I love the red cat. I think the Red Cat is uh, it was super innovative when they released it. It was right in that uh, that sweet uh, price point. I thought they did a great job, and William William does a good job with everything he does. I really respect William a lot. Absolutely, um, he's he's a great guy. But I think that um, the one the one thing, and it was something that came up early on when we were talking, was just focus. That's that's the biggest difference is focus. I would say um, other than like. If you're mounting a lot of stuff, it's what the radiant, it was designed for astrophotography. So we figured there were going to be a lot of cables. That's why it has cabling through the ring set included. And you can mount on every side of the rings in case you're using like Pegasus power boxes or an Eagle or anything like that. We wanted to take that stuff into consideration. So there's just mounting everywhere on it and cable management and all that kind of stuff. But the, um, you know, the other big piece and probably the biggest piece once you're actually out there is focus and you said you haven't used the focuser yet right you're just using a manual focuser for now just using the manual focuser it's just bing bam it's ready to go yeah i i really like uh, i don't trust myself enough for uh manual focusers i do like that you know the the zero shift lock that's on these for manual focus is really good but that that shift that happens when you lock do you know what i'm talking about where when you yep. try to lock the screw, it shifts. Yeah, oh, that. Yeah. So everybody that's imaging that, that uses manual focusers right now, they know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the worst. It's the worst. You get perfect focus. You got a batten off mask, everything going. You get perfect focus. And then the first thing you got to do is you got to lock it so that it doesn't slip while you're imaging. But when you lock it, I don't know, you know how this has been overlooked in some telescopes, but when you lock it, it moves the focuser slightly. And so I don't know if it's like pinching between their, their gearing or what's happening, but it moves the slow focuser ever so slightly and it shifts you just out of perfect focus. And so with a motorized focuser, you don't ever lock the focuser. The motors themselves control it. And so you never have that. But that's why on the mechanical lock on this one, it's zero shift. So even when, if you are using it manually, it's not going to pinch up between two gears or anything like that. It will just lock in the exact spot that you leave it so that, you know, even though it's a small change, you just like, don't, you don't, you just want to know that you got your absolute best. Well, everything. Yeah, I, I, I totally, I mean, there's, there's so many people that would say a motorized focuser is a must have. Um, but what I would say, the, the great thing about a stocky four pound little refractor is that you can keep that focus lock pretty tight, keep the tension tight, move the focus, adjust the focus, and it's not going anywhere. It's not this long tube. Um, obviously, people are going to have some heavier cameras at the back of it. Uh, that's going to change things. But for for my mirrorless camera or DSLR, my goodness, it doesn't budge. Yeah. And that's that's why we went with the tension instead of just like an actual into a gear lock was not just so that it wouldn't shift, but so that you could control like how how simply it is for it to slip and so you can set that tension and unless you're using just an just an ungodly heavy camera off the back you should be able to find that tension point 
and maybe this is what you're doing now, maybe this is what you meant, where you can leave it connected and locked all the time and then find focus and just not touch it. That's and it'll exactly stay. it. Yep, that's that's where I'm at. I leave it super. That tension is really tight, uh, but I'm still able to to fine tune it. But I just I don't touch it. So it's like essentially locked at all times. Yeah, yeah. Those are the subtle subtle little differences, but man, they matter when you're out there. You know, it's just like you want. It's such a process of like that's that's the goal is climbing that mountain. You know, it's really trying to achieve your absolute best, and it can be the smallest thing that kind of becomes distracting or even frustrating. And that, that focus lock issue that I've seen, and I've probably seen that in five or six different scopes that I've owned, it always really bothered me. And so I just would never use those scopes unless I could get a focus motor option to control it. The the rotator too, man, the rotator is not standard on a lot of scopes. That's something I've had to come up with um, a way around it you know, sometimes rotating the entire tube in the rings to rotate the camera sensor. That's not the case yeah. in this Raptor. Yeah. And so, um, that's an issue, Tony, you guys probably didn't have this cause you never like use DSLRs, but DSLRs use, um, these little, like they're click in adapters. But the problem is, is that once they're clicked in, you can't adjust the rotation angle of your camera. So you have a fixed You're talking about the, uh, the T mounts. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. The T rings. Yeah. And so oh, they okay. thread on, but then on the other side, they click on the way a lens would. And so you can't adjust yeah. it unless there's an actual rotation, uh, aspect of the focuser or, or some part of the mechanical, you know, setup of the telescope. And so, yeah, we, we probably, <laughs> we took it pretty far. I think we put two, two rotation spots on there, but the other one. So the first one is the rotator itself where you can unlock it and rotate the camera to the correct angle. Then there's also tension, um, adjustments there where you can set that the same way you do your focuser with zero shift. But we also have the rings that have two stages of locking. And the reason that we like, you know, I, I've already gotten questions. Well, isn't that redundant? If I'm rotating at the back, do I really need to be rotating inside the rings? And the answer is no, it's not. It's not. Here's why it's important. When you start putting this on smaller and smaller mounts, what you'll find, especially if you're using a big camera, is that as it comes down into certain orientations on the mount, it might run into like a tripod leg in a certain, you know, fixed orientation. And so being able to just unhook those rings, because like I said, they're two stages. So the first clamp holds it in, the second clamp locks it down. So if you're just holding it in, you can rotate the whole telescope, the whole assembly inside the rings to make sure that when it swings down, it doesn't run into things. Like it, it has nothing to do with framing. It has everything to do with making sure that you're clear of obstructions in your system. And so, yeah, there, there are a few, <laughs> few rotation adjustments on this. One. I believe that's called attention to detail. <laughs> yeah. yeah. We're going to get Tony shooting one of these. Is there anything guys, you, you, more you want to add to the episode before we call it a quit before we uh, close it out? I can't believe it's already been an hour. Yeah. That flew by. Uh, no, I mean, I think that, uh, I think there's so much to talk about and I'm sure we're going to be talking. I know November 11th rolls around. I feel like this is all we're going to be talking about. Um, I'm already getting more and more messages by the day. So I, I just say that, you know, uh, people that want more information, just stay tuned. Definitely watch Trevor's account, Astro Backyard, uh, both on YouTube, but then on Instagram, you've been posting a lot of your stuff to Instagram there, uh, more recently with it. Yeah. Every, every clear night chance I get. And, um, you know what? 
it, it might look like, you know, with the, the only person to own a Raptor 61, I'd want to just keep showing it off. But to be totally honest with you, it's, it would be the, the telescope that I reach for first in most situations anyway. Uh, so again, just leading towards, you know, the fact that this has been the easiest product review uh, and probably most enjoyable that I've ever done. All right. Well, good. Well, I guess we'll go ahead and close it out there. I'm ba- I want to thank uh, Trevor Jones from Astro Bike Yard for joining us and also Dustin, of course, from OPT. You guys need to check out this telescope. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to OPT's website, optcorp.com. Search for the Radiant Raptor 61. You'll see all the uh, information on it there. And uh, it will. the first batch is shipping out November 11th and uh, more to come. So definitely keep your eye out for this. And as we as we hope you will always keep doing. I want to thank you first for listening, and as always, keep looking up. Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.